Welcome to the Healthy Habits for Life podcast. I'm Dr. Carol Perlman, a psychologist, health coach, and married mom of two boys. I went from a frazzled mompreneur who hits snooze until the last possible moment to a vibrant business owner who jumps out of bed at 5 a.m. excited about my day. I once felt completely overwhelmed by my endless task list, but have learned how to work smarter, not harder, by studying health habits, mindset, and time management. I love to teach others how to implement top recommendations for health, happiness, and success. Yes, busy moms can learn how to stop picking at your kids' leftover food, create a daily exercise routine, and stay on top of the to-do list so you go to bed feeling fantastic about your day. Tune in each week as I share my best strategies for creating and sustaining daily habits for a healthy lifestyle and chat with other experts in the health and wellness industry. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Perlman. This is the Healthy Habits for Life show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today is the fourth installment of this four-week series on breast cancer awareness, and I really hope that you have enjoyed these interviews and, um, and have found a lot of value. I'm in awe of the speakers that we've had and the work that they're doing, and I really hope that you have um, gotten a lot of value from them. So today I have with me Jill Mull. And Jill and I have um, quite the history together. We go way back. We were just counting the years, um, way back to freshman year at Emory University. And it's just kind of crazy, the journeys that um, that life takes you on since then. So I'm so happy to have Jill with us here today. So welcome, Jill. Thank you, Carol. Yes, it's been a while since uh, we lived in the same freshman hall. But, you know, I'm glad that we are back together to talk about some important moments in my life and hopefully teach people some good tips. Yeah, I'm, I'm grateful to Facebook because I think without it, you know, so many people would have lost touch and I know my life is better from reconnecting with so many people. So I, for one, am grateful to Facebook. Um, so let me tell everyone a little bit about you. Jill works with breast cancer patients and survivors of all ages with a focus on young women and families. She navigates patients experiencing breast cancer at all stages from DCIS or stage zero to women living with metastatic disease. In addition to individual work with patients, Jill facilitates support groups, organizes educational webinars, and serves on the Fetting Fund, which you'll have to tell us more about. Jill studied anthropology and sociology at Emory University and holds a Master of Education degree from Goucher College. Jill has served as the patient navigator at the Green Spring Station since 2015, but began her time with Hopkins as a young breast cancer patient in 2005. Jill often calls on lessons learned from her experience to guide patients from initial diagnosis, treatments, and through survivorship. Wow, Jill, we could talk for hours today. Um, You've been through a lot, and this is what I really love to hear is how people are able to take some of the hard times in their life and use those lessons learned to help others going through it. And I, I just so admire the work that you're doing. So let's go back to the beginning and tell us how your story with breast cancer began. So thank you again for having me. I really appreciate being here and being able to share my story and hopefully help others. And I, I really truly feel very lucky. And people think, how can you feel lucky as you were diagnosed with this aggressive breast cancer at 32 years old, you had four-year-old twins, you know, how is that lucky? And I think one of the luckiest things that occurred and one of the silver linings is what I get to do to help others after this journey. So um, when I was 32, I felt a lump in my breast and I was just in shock. I felt fine. I have no family history. 
Um, but I did know that I should go to the doctor immediately, which I did the next day. Um, I think it's important to be a self-advocate, you know, your body the best. And to me, something was wrong. And I, I think from the moment I felt it, I thought it was cancer, but certainly nobody else did being that I was young and that I had no history and I felt fine. People were assuming that it was a cyst and I was just too young for breast cancer. Um, I had a biopsy done and, um, you know, it was cancer obviously. And I have to say, I was in shock for so long. And I think denial is a good place to be when you're first diagnosed, no matter what your age is. Um, you know, it's kind of difficult to take it all in. I was sitting in a conference room for three hours and a lot of vocabulary was thrown at me getting my pathology report, including mycocalcifications, chemotherapy, HER2 positive, estrogen positive. And needless to say, it was overwhelming and all very unclear. Um, and I, I wished I had someone to say, what is this? And, and Google is not your friend when you have cancer. Um, Google is where people, a lot of people go to complain or to say difficult things. And I think it's really important not to go to Google. I think it's important to find good resources on good websites and ask professionals for opinions. But um, I thought it was a pretty early stage breast cancer. They were just gonna do a lumpectomy, which um, they did two days after they found the breast cancer. and. I was going to go off my life. I went to my in-laws to visit them in Rochester the day after the lumpectomy. We took our little twins for my father-in-law's birthday and flew back to get the results from the lumpectomy, which weren't good. The cancer was spreading and they could not get it all out with a lumpectomy. Three out of four of the margins, which if you picture a square, three out of four sides still had cancer and there was um, aggressive cancer in the lymph nodes. Um, the tumor in the lymph nodes was bigger than the one in my breast, which meant that it was spreading. So they put me into chemo before I could even think about what chemo is. I had a port installed in my chest. That was a direct line to the um, heart. So I could um, get all of the poison that they had to put in me. I had 16 treatments over five months, um, which then led to a bilateral mastectomy. And then I had nine more months of targeted therapy, intravenous treatments, because it was a very aggressive HER2 positive breast cancer, um, and then three reconstructive surgeries. So it was a long time. Um, and I feel lucky because so many people were around supporting me. I had great family, great friends, people to help with the twins. Um, it was really, it really taught me about life and what friendships are and that it's okay to delegate, it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to let others help you. It's temporary and you would do the same for them. That was really hard for me. So my journey lasted almost two years um, and then 10 years of hormonal therapy. So that was, I, I took a drug for 10 years for anti-hormonal therapy. And so, you know, if you think of 12 years of treatment, I thought to myself, as soon as my last day was finished of hormonal therapy, like what now, you know, and I was kind of nervous. So I understand survivorship can be difficult. And I was very lucky that I, um, my sister moved here from California with her three young children. That was just a blessing beyond. She's lived here ever since. And I always tell her I would get cancer all over again to have her move here, which she doesn't like to hear. But um, there was a lot of humor. Um, when I took my wig off for the first time, my four-year-old son, one of the twins ran away crying. He goes, why didn't you ever tell me you were bald? And he thought I was bald his whole life. And that I was just, you know, and then he started telling everyone, he would walk 10 feet in front of me and be like, my mommy's bald and she's wearing a wig. She has cancer. Like he, so the humor helped. Um, and my silver lining is my job as a navigator. So I work at Johns Hopkins as a patient navigator, as you said, helping young women from diagnosis through survivorship. Oh my gosh, Jill. 
I mean, what what an experience you've been through. I, I can't even imagine the emotions as a young mom realizing that your life just took a major turn that you were not expecting. And we could we could spend so much time talking about that. You are clearly a very strong, resilient person. And I love that you were able to see all these silver linings, what was probably a very, very difficult time for in one way for those two years and then in another way for the 10 years and then, you know, even beyond. And um, you are, you have incredible resilience um, and what a blessing that you had your sister to be able to be there for you um, and move closer. So I think, you know, when someone has gone through an experience personally and then they're in that role to provide what was not there for you, that must just feel amazing. You know, you sitting there at that conference table feeling like, where was that person sitting next to me to help me digest all this information? And now you get to be that gift to someone else. So what is it like to be in that role? You know, I just want to say that I was very lucky to have, you know, stage 2B. It was an aggressive young breast cancer, but it's different from people that have stage four breast cancer who I also help. So people living with metastatic disease or stage four breast cancer are going to be in treatment the rest of their life. We don't have a cure for that. Once the cancer has metastasized out of the breast, it can metastasize to the lung, the liver, or the bone, and then possibly to the brain. We can't cure it. So while I was so lucky to be cured, I do help a lot of women that um, are just, and young women that are in treatment forever. Um, Young women, when you think about it with early stage or metastatic disease, they're starting new careers, they're dating, they have young children, they're building a life and they can't just put breast cancer on their to-do list, right? Like you have to take a leave from work. You might not be able to afford treatment. You, you know, need help with your children. And I think of women as juggling so many balls in the air and they have to figure out which are rubber and which are glass. So the rubber balls can bounce and the glass balls need to stay up and the rubber balls need to bounce. You need to decide what you can give to other people and separate those things. And I think that is part of my job um, to help people to see that, to give people hope, to give people good information, um, to educate people related to their diagnosis and their treatment options and to say, oh, when I had my chemotherapy, it really helped me. I took this special tea and it really helped, you know, some side effects. So managing symptoms and side effects, encouraging people, gosh, the first time I had treatment, I didn't know what to expect. So the fear and the anxiety really, really was ramped up from the uncertainty. But after the first one, I knew what to predict. And so helping people get through that initial chemo, relating it to my diagnosis and my experience really helps. Yeah, I'm sure it's so scary. Like anything, you don't know what to expect. And it always feels one way in your head, you know, which can be different and um, how invaluable to be able to give someone a heads up. Here's what you can expect and here's what you can do to prepare, even though I'm sure you can't fully prepare. Um, it, you know, you just have to go through it and then it definitely gets easier when you know what to expect. So and I love that that analogy about the balls. I think you could apply that to a lot of different things. Actually, you know, we try to juggle so many things and really being able to look at which, which ones really can bounce. Mm -hmm. um, like you were saying before, you know, asking for help, you know, it really is okay. It really is okay. People are so willing to help. You would do it in a heartbeat. If, if you had that opportunity to be there for someone else, we would all do that in a heartbeat. But why is it so hard to be on the other side and to ask for help? Yeah, and there's actually even ways to make it easier. So there's a lot of apps now like CareGather 
or caring calendar. So instead of having to call someone and say, hey, Carol, can you pick up my twins from kindergarten? You can put it on the calendar and then all the people that follow that app can sign up. And it's a little bit easier to ask for help that way. You know, I assist women in helping to gather their care group mm -hmm. and how can we get, you know, otherwise you're gonna be getting a lot of flowers and casseroles. And I think it's, it's better to be specific and tell people what yeah. your needs are because it helps them to help you. It's so true. And because there can be a mismatch, you know, someone as, as a patient may have a certain thought of, you know, I really wish it would be so great if someone could do this. And then as someone who wants to be supportive might come in and say, oh, I'm here to help and I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, but that might be a mismatch with what the person really wants. And so to facilitate that communication can make this a, a much better setup for success to be helpful. Yeah. And it, and it helps also to connect to others that are walking the walk. Like if you think about you have breast cancer and you know you go online to connect to people it's really nice to be able to know others so we run three support groups i run a group for younger women who have early stage breast cancer we have a group for older women over 50 postmenopausal women who have breast cancer and we run a group for women living with metastatic disease and there's a lot of subgroups there's groups for people of color there's groups for lgbtq and i think that helps to connect to other people and find of get secrets and tips too, just to go into these support groups. And even if you don't want to talk to listen in and, you know, learn about how you can make this journey a little bit easier. What would you say for someone um, who maybe heard about these kinds of groups? Um, are they online or in person now? So unfortunately now they're all in line because at Johns Hopkins, we are not allowed to do in person. We do run a walk and talk masked and socially distant outside so that we can see each other, get some exercise and connect. Yeah. But most of our yoga and our um, support groups and our nutrition, exercise, sexual intimacy, anxiety, all of the groups we do are, are now online for now. So what would you say? I mean, I think in some ways that can actually be easier if this is all new. And so I'm wondering, what would you say to someone who's maybe nervous, you know, to go online, to reach out, to join a group for the first time? What would you say to that could be helpful to that person? I mean, I always say that if you just try it once, you never have to go again. And groups are not for everybody, Carol. I mean, I do a lot of one-on-one -on -one navigation with people who are not group people, and I appreciate that. But almost anyone that tries it, I had someone uh, last week who said, it's not for me. And I said, just listen in. You don't even have to talk. You don't even have to put your camera on. Just see how you feel. And next thing you know, her camera's on. She's sharing her whole story. And she's like, you know, got a little teary, but she really called me afterwards and said, wow, you know, that was really freeing to have other people understand what I'm going through. Um, and even just, I would say, if you're looking for a support group to try to look for one with people that are similar backgrounds or similar diagnosis to you, because my first support group was, was with women that were all 30 and 40 years older. And I left after, you know, 10 minutes, it was really difficult for me to relate. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so amazing that right now there are so many options. So you can do that. And I love that advice to just dip your toe in the water and lurk, you know, whether, whether it's um, one of those Facebook, Facebook groups that's not live, just lurk and read and see if there's anything that you connect with that's helpful. And then you always have the option to do more. You have the option to talk. And, you know, like you, like uh, this example you shared, you never know, you know, once you're in there, what you might feel ready to do. So I think that's really helpful. Um, so what are some of the other dimensions of care um, and of the journey that you help people with as you are by their side? I mean, it's just a lot. When you think of 
breast cancer, you think of chemotherapy, surgery, and radiation. And those are three ways that we cure, treat, or reduce the risk of recurrence, right? And it's a lot to go through. So I assist women with overcoming barriers to care and connecting them resources to exercise, nutrition, transportation. Some people just can't even get to their treatments. Um, house cleaning, you know, conserve your energy, use it to spend time with your children. There are free house cleaning out there for people who are going through chemotherapy, um, physical therapy. Some people have lymphedema after surgery and need physical therapy. Fertility. We can put people into menopause. So maybe they want to talk to fertility preservation before they start chemo. Let me see if I can, is that something you're interested in? Let's get you an appointment and at least hear about it. See if it's something you want, where to find a wig you know, um, genetic counseling. Do you have any genetics that cause this or help to, um, that you can help your family with knowing? And so those are some of the things that I help our patients with. You must have a catalog of like a crazy resources in your head and at your fingertips. I mean, these are a lot of different areas to know about. Um, and I'm sure over the years, you know, you've just been stacked with a lot of. Yeah, we try to and it's not just Johns Hopkins resources. So yes, we have a lot of great resources, Johns Hopkins, but we turn to, we don't want to do what our partners are doing. Why are we going to reinvent the wheel? So we have collaborative partners all through the country that we work with to help to um, help patients with these resources. And we also work with our metastatic patients on connecting them to palliative care or hospice or home health care services. And we work a lot with the caregivers. So if it's adult children, spouses, partners, parents, we help them help them self-care doing what's best for them, but also helping them to understand what their loved one's going through. Mm -hmm. I think that's such a big piece of it. I mean, it's people don't know what to do, you know, when your loved one is going through this. And of course, most people want to do the right thing and want to be there um, and may have their own emotions about what's going on. Um, and then like I was talking about before, it's just very easy to be, um, to create a mismatch between what you're offering for support and what someone really needs. So Tell me a little bit about that and, and the conversations that you have with caregivers. I think caregivers feel like they're in a safe space when they're not with their patient to really explain their fears. I don't think they want to say that as much to their loved ones. I had a patient recently who she's living with metastatic disease and she's young and she has young kids and she doesn't talk about it. She feels pretty good. She's stable now and she goes through her life and her husband wants to talk about it. He wants to understand it more. He wants to have dialogue, but he doesn't want to upset her. So he has conversations with us about, should I be going to visit the funeral home? Should we be planning what her wishes are? Should we, and it's very, you know, he feels free to say that to us. And I think the other caregivers on the group can give him advice of how they would handle it. And that it's fair for him to voice, these are my fears. Let's have this conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's such a good point that you may have to talk about things that you don't want to talk about with your family member, but you need a place where you can talk about them. Yes. So you run separate specific caregiver groups. We do. We do. We we um, have therapists come in or counselors or recently we had one and actually one of our medical oncologists led it because he was trained as a psychiatrist before he was trained as a medical oncologist. And really his wheelhouse is understanding people's spirit, people, you know, it's not just, you don't just get cancer and it's just it affects just your medical and then that's it. It's really affects your whole mind, body, soul, family, and community and forever. So I think that's something that we have to address as the medical community. We can't just act like we're going to take care of the cancer when there's so much more that happens. 
So how do you help someone with that? I mean, here you are. How many years has it been since you stopped taking your uh, medications? I've been off the medication for almost five years and I was diagnosed 16 years ago. Yeah. So what, what was recommended to you or what are some of the ways that you've helped to that you've, um, that have helped you kind of work through the ongoing anxiety and just, you know, unknown and the questions that you go through in your head. I mean, time is really the best one. And I often tell people, I wish I could push fast forward because as people like to say, it's a new normal, which I'm not sure I love that term, but getting used to living with cancer, breast cancer by your side, it's never going away. It doesn't matter if you're cured or you're living with um, metastatic disease. It's always a part of your identity. So how you're going to live with that is going to be your part of your identity. And it depends on, you know, if you want to, at the beginning, I used to think every headache was a brain tumor, but as time passed, those fears of recurrence definitely were not in my forefront. I still think about it every day. I still have scars. I still have scars from my port scars from my surgery. You know, it's a constant reminder Um, my hair grew back. I, you know, that was extremely difficult, but I think, I think time is the biggest. I think counseling can be very helpful. I think medication can sometimes be helpful if needed. I think group therapy or individual counseling. Some people turn to their faith, whether it's, you know, the clergy or, or their community of, um, religious, uh, people, their neighbors, you know, whoever can support you. And that was going to be one of my questions. You answered it is whether you ever have a day where you don't think about it at all. Like one day do you say, well, like it never, it didn't pop into my mind yesterday, or is it there in some way, shape or form? Well, it is there every day. And I think part of it is that it's my job, so I can't really escape it. Um, But part of it is also that it just really developed who I was. I never kind of said why me or why did this happen and how, because many people were like, do you have it in your family? You know, people want to feel safe. Nobody's safe from breast cancer. It's one in eight. And it can be anybody, one in eight in a lifetime. And I think we all have to be aware of what we can do. And and you mentioned earlier the Fedding Fund. That is the Fedding Fund for breast cancer prevention. So we race for the cure. There's all these cures. You know, prevention is really a new way of looking at breast cancer. Why don't we find that one in eight? Why don't we find that person who we think is high risk, follow them, give them mammograms, prevent their breast cancer, and let the other seven and eight relax? Mm -hmm. And that's something that I think, you know, we really need to do a lot of research on, but that it's possible. Yeah, I I pray to God that, you know, fast forward into the future, we will be better able to detect not only breast cancer, but all cancers, you know, whether it's whether it's like body scans, whether it's some kind of blood work, like, you know, I pray that we will be able to see these early, early markers um, and be able to manage it. Um, I don't know if you had a chance to hear this, yes, hear this yet, because it just aired as we are recording today is Wednesday that just aired on Monday, but Sabrina Hernandez did an amazing interview with me on nutrition strategies for preventing breast cancer. And I have to say my jaw was kind of dropping during the interview. I mean, the, the research that she cites is so compelling about how we can use nutrition and also exercise and weight control as really powerful strategies for prevention. And that's something that's available to all of us. You know, we all that is not just for the wealthy, you know, nutritious food is not just for the wealthy. It is available to all of us. If you have the information about what you want to steer towards and what you want to avoid. And I think that nutritional piece is so compelling. Yeah. People want to take the things that they can control, especially if they're diagnosed with breast cancer, but certainly if they're a family member of someone who's had breast cancer and control them. Um, You know, we do say a healthy BMI is really one of the best preventions 
to cancer. And how do you do that through good nutrition and exercise? And it doesn't need to be, you know, some crazy boot camp seven days a week. Just get outside and walk. You know, it's simple. Um, anybody can do that. They don't need a membership to a gym or Wi-Fi. Um, so we really encourage our patients to do that, which is why we have online yoga and walk-in talks and things that are, you know, getting people moving. Um, and as far as nutrition, I mean, that's the first thing everybody wants to do. And I, you know, I have patients that will say, well, I'm just going to become raw vegan or, or very, very um, extreme diets. And, and our story is, you know, we really feel like just everything in moderation and Mediterranean diet and keeping healthy, there's really no one food that's going to prevent you from getting breast cancer. We wish we knew if we knew we would tell you, but the data is not there. But what the data is there for is having, you know, healthy, nutritious food and exercise as part of your lifestyle. Yeah. And you know what I learned as much as, you know, I, I have obviously have heard that and know that in regard to cancer prevention, but I didn't understand the mechanism through which weight control helps with prevention. And it's because excess fat is what stores the hormones, which is what makes you susceptible to breast cancer. And so that's the link that's really important. Yes. And some breast cancers are driven by hormones. There's estrogen receptor and not to get too technical and um, progesterone receptors that are, can be positive, but some breast cancers can be triple negative, have no drip drive through hormones or HER2 positivity. So not to throw in a lot of terms, but be clear that there is something called triple negative breast cancer and that it's not hormonally driven. So most breast cancers, 85% are ERPR positive, which is estrogen and progesterone hormonally driven, but there are a percentage of breast cancers that are aggressive called triple negative breast cancer, which are not hormonally driven. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I hear what you're saying. So, you know, the weight control is important and it's one mechanism through which some cancers develop. It doesn't explain how all cancers develop, but it is something that absolutely when we, when we want to seek control and ways that we can minimize our risk, it is a really powerful way that we can. Absolutely. And something it's a hard change. You know, people don't all can't all do that on their own. So, you know, talk to your doctor, talk to your there's studies. We have a study at Hopkins that, you know, that we help people to lose weight and get a bigger BMI um, breast cancer survivors. So, you know, talk to your doctors and see what you can do to plan. It's, it's a hard thing to do on your own. Yes. And there's so much out there these days. You don't have to do it alone. I mean, there's so many people available to help through insurance, through coaching online. You know, we have so much at our fingertips these days that that make it so much easier. So um, I have one more question for you, Jill. I could talk to you all day long about this, but I'm curious in some of the notes that you sent me, you talked about legacy work. And so I'd love to hear more about what you meant by that. That's a tough thing to talk about. Um, legacy work is for my patients who are diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer and they want to leave information or legacy or stories for mostly their children, but people do it for lots of people. So for instance, if I have a young mom, sometimes we buy a bunch of cards and it might be for future birthdays, graduation from high school, first child or marriage. And we write those cards and those cards can be given to someone to give to their children in the future. So they'll know what their mom would have wanted to tell them during that time. Uh, for very young children, we take Hallmark books. We do recordings of books and that's mommy's voice reading the book so that they can still hear mommy's voice. Um, sometimes we work with um, like a will, but really more of not where you're leaving your stuff, but leaving your values teaching um, people. We do a lot of videos um, for future generations. So legacy work is what is your legacy? You know, so um, 
it's very difficult conversation to have. And some people are ready to do it at the beginning when they look and feel their best and they want to get on video and their voice still sounds good and they're strong. And some people towards the end are finally realizing that's something that's important to them. And so then we might not do a video. We might do something where they dictate something to me and I write it. It's, it's a difficult thing to do in a difficult conversation, but you can leave this earth knowing that you have shared your values, your legacy and your stories with the people that you love and that you are sad to leave. Yeah. I can see just how very difficult that work is for their patients and also for you to, to be a part of that. And what an incredible gift that you give and being willing to do the hard so that someone else can give this gift to their family. It's just, um, it's, it's evocative for me to think about. I know it's evocative for you and it's just such an incredible gift. And I'm so glad that there are people like you and many others who are willing to do that hard work so that these surviving family members have these legacies. It's beautiful. Really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it is hard. It's hard to lose patients because you love them so much and you care about them and their families, yeah. but, um, you hope that you made their life a little better by being there. Oh my gosh. Without a doubt, you know, without a doubt, I, I know some people who work in hospice and I think they are some of the greatest angels around and anyone who has the courage to sit with these feelings and sit with families going through this and help someone um, create more peace at end of life. It's, it's just incredible, incredible work. So, and some of that legacy work too is within while they're feeling well to create memories with their family. So I had a young patient who was battling metastatic breast cancer and all she wanted her final wish after three years was just to put her feet in the sand in her favorite beach with her husband and her children. And she couldn't travel on a plane due to her oxygen and her wheelchair and her Plurex catheter. So we found the funding for an auto train to take her to our favorite beach in Florida. And then he couldn't get her on the beach because the wheelchair. So then we found the wheelchair with the big wheels and he got her onto the beach and got her feet in the sand. And she sent me a picture of the whole family on the beach. And she died the day that they got back. And her husband gave me a mug that they bought me together while they were down there of the beach in Florida, which I drink my coffee out of every day. This was six years ago, but you know, that was creating a memory for all of them. So that's a different kind of legacy work that can be really meaningful as well, just to get wishes and memories made for the family. Yeah. That's so beautiful. Um, like I said, we could talk on and on. Is there anything else you'd like to add to this conversation? Things that you wish you knew when you were going through it or, you know, a message that you would want to put out there for how to navigate the journey? I would say number one is report all your side effects and symptoms from surgery, radiation, and or chemotherapy to your providers. They won't be able to help you unless you tell them what's going on. And nothing is silly. We have nurses that sit on triage and they want to know. Um, as you go through treatment, you can get your supportive care meds adjusted and feel better. We want you to feel good. So number one is report. Number two is stay hydrated. It's huge. Drink tons of water. If you can't drink water, drink flavored water or soup or ices or anything to stay hydrated. And um, number three is stay active if you can. You know, get up, get dressed. If you can walk down three houses, walk past three houses, maybe it'll be five. But do what you can do. You know, laying in bed is understandable if you're feeling terrible, but just you know, it's okay to take a vacation to sadness or depression or even fatigue, but just don't pack your bags and stay there. If that's what you're doing, then call your provider. Mm -hmm. I like how you put that. Yeah. Don't take a vacation and stay there. Um, Jill, I'm going to follow up with you. I want to put in the show notes, you gave some really amazing resources um, 
today that I want to make sure that they're in the show notes, because as you mentioned, they're not just within Hopkins. These are, you know, worldwide resources that are available to everyone. And so we'll make sure that we have those accurately written so people can check that out in the show notes. Of course. And if anyone wanted to connect with you to um, either learn more about the work that you're doing or that Hopkins is doing, where can they find you? So, um, if you go on Johns Hopkins Breast Center, you can um, Google Breast Cancer Navigators and they can find me or they can email me at jmull1 at jhmi.edu. Okay, fantastic. And do most hospitals or most cancer centers have patient navigators like this? I think they do. They're not necessarily all resource oriented. Some of them are nurses and they do more of scheduling or helping with those types of things. But I think if you ask anyone in your hospital, if even if they don't have a navigator, they want to help. So, you know, ask your nurses, ask your nurse practitioner, ask your doctors if there is a navigator, a social worker, somebody that can help you through this, because it does take some specialized help sometimes to really survive and thrive. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's remarkable, you know, that you you in one role are able to offer so many services. So I hope many, many hospitals have that as well. And if they don't have that one-stop shop, then piece it together, find multiple providers um, and multiple staff members who can help you get all of these different needs met. Sure. Yeah. Jill, thank you so much. This was really um, great information. I'm so, so glad that we can pass this on to those who may need it. So I thank you so much. I know it's not easy to talk about all this and thank you for sharing your journey and this amazing work that you're doing. Thank you for inviting me, Carol. Hello friends, it's Carol Perlman coming on to say hello and thank you so much for listening. I hope you've been enjoying these episodes as much as I've enjoyed creating them for you. I wanted to make sure you knew about a special program that is currently being offered on my website. If you go to www.healthy4lifebycarolperlman.com, you'll see more information about my current time management classes. If you follow me on social media, if you listen to my podcast, you know that I believe time management is behind almost every single one of your goals. And the more you can perfect your skills in time management, the more successful you're going to be in reaching your goals. I have created what I believe is a really outstanding class. I've been studying time management for years. I've been perfecting my own system and I've been teaching others for almost 15 years now. I created an online course, a 21 day habit formation course that is now available to you. They, quote unquote, they say it takes 21 days to create a new habit. And I find that that is often time the case. So go look on the website, Healthy for Life by carolperlman.com and you will see current offerings. I have several different time management classes for specific audiences, but the general one is just the It's About Time time management class. You'll see all the details there. You'll see the upcoming start date and there's always the opportunity to buy the workbook and complete the course as a self-paced course and take it at your own speed. It's one exercise a day. All you need to commit is 10, maybe 15 minutes a day. Step-by-step, you will create new habits that last a lifetime for better time management. Check it out, and I hope to see you in one of the classes. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Healthy Habits for Life. If you loved today's episode, please follow me on iTunes and leave a five-star rating and review. 
These are so important and will enable others like you to find this podcast. Also, please share this podcast with your friends you know would also love it so we can get the word out. Thanks again for joining me. Until next week.